Just before dawn on April 17, 1897, Judge J.S. Proctor of Aurora, Texas went out to inspect and manage his property as he always did. Being one of the more affluent and respected members of the community, his sprawling estate included a comfortable house as well as a farm where he grew corn and grain and raised livestock. It was a mild, comfortable morning, the kind not unfamiliar to North Texas in the springtime, by no means unusual or out of the ordinary. The rooster hadn't even crowed yet, and much of the town was still fast asleep. Judge Proctor had just bent down to inspect a stock of grain when a bright beam of light in the east commanded his attention skyward. What he saw made his heart skip a beat. A large, cigar-shaped object had burst into flames and was now heading directly for his farm. He watched in horror as it crashed into his windmill, completely destroying it in the process. Following it with his gaze, he ran towards its intended crash landing site in the field beyond his property. There it landed with a loud metallic thud which echoed and reverberated throughout the area, skidding to a halt several yards away. By now the commotion had drawn the attention of his neighbors who, having been jarred awake, went to see if the honorable judge was all right. Relieved upon finding him unscathed, they all turned their attention to the object, which now appeared more like a vessel of some sort. Its shiny surface reflected the golden light of the encroaching dawn. Nothing like it had ever been seen before, certainly not by the townsfolk of Aurora. the object was still too hot to approach without being burned. With a hiss, a hatch on its side was opened. The judge and his neighbors all jumped back, some cowering in fear and uncertainty. Much to their surprise, out fell the pilot, who was later cryptically described as simply being, quote, not of this world, unquote. Pulling the being from the wreckage, they were saddened to find that the pilot had already died, no doubt from a lethal combination of smoke inhalation and injuries sustained from the crash itself. Where had this strange visitor come from? What did the townsfolk of Aurora do in the aftermath of the crash? And was this mysterious incident historical fact or an elaborate hoax? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and I encourage you to draw your own conclusions from these most unusual and puzzling circumstances right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Despite its proximity to the bustling metropolis of Fort Worth, a mere 27 miles, or 43 kilometers away, Aurora to this day is about as rural and small town as one can get in the Lone Star State. As of 2020, the population was just shy of 1,500 residents, and while it now boasts all the modern amenities necessary for comfortable living, it wasn't always like this. Settlement in the area began in the late 1850s, with farmers setting up shop on the rich, fertile land to grow crops. In 1873, a post office went up, and nine years later, on August 21st, 1882, the burgeoning town was officially incorporated. Just a few years later, Aurora had grown considerably to include some 15 businesses, two schools, two cotton gins, two hotels, and a population that ranged anywhere from 750 to 3,000 residents. But despite such rapid development, it never really took off as a thriving community. For starters, the town was the site of a particularly nasty outbreak of spotted fever that ravaged the community from late 1888 through mid-1889. Fear of the disease caused much of its citizenry to move elsewhere. 1891 saw further dispersal when the Fort Worth and Denver City Railroad abandoned its plans to lay down tracks through Aurora, opting instead to do so through the neighboring community of Rome, that's R-H-O-M-E, two miles, three kilometers to the southeast. It's to here that much of Aurora's remaining population relocated, leaving, by the mid-1890s, a sparse settlement in its wake. 
For all intents and purposes, it looked as if Aurora wouldn't financially survive, and therefore be abandoned within a few short years. This all changed, however, in 1897, when that strange visitor from another world crash-landed there. Two days after the incident, on April 19th, an article penned by one S.E. Hayden appeared in the Dallas Morning News, which read in part as follows. About six o'clock in the morning of April 17th, the early risers of Aurora were astonished at the sudden appearance of an airship. The pilot of the ship is supposed to have been the only one on board, and while his remains are badly disfigured, enough of the original has been picked up to show that he was not an inhabitant of this world. Mr. T.J. Weems, an authority on astronomy, gives it as his opinion that the pilot was a native of the planet Mars. Papers found on his person, evidently the record of his travels, are written in some unknown hieroglyphics and cannot be deciphered. It was this account that introduced the story to the public at large, putting the oft-overlooked town of Aurora in the proverbial spotlight for the first time in its, at the time, short history. Word soon spread throughout the state of the Martian that had landed in northern Texas, with several curious people looking to pay the town a visit for themselves. Thus, Aurora became the Roswell, New Mexico of its time, drawing visitors from throughout the state to inquire about the otherworldly pilot and his mysterious aircraft. The day after the incident, the pilot was buried with what was later described as full Christian rites within the town cemetery, simply named Aurora Cemetery, by a William Russell Tabor, a traveling pastor who just so happened to be passing through Aurora at the time of the crash. A stone marker was placed at the head of the grave, indicating the burial site. According to contemporary sources of the time, parts of the wreckage were placed in the grave alongside the pilot, while others were discarded, rather curiously, in the well beneath Judge Proctor's damaged windmill. While visitors to Aurora weren't shown the haphazard parts of the aircraft, the gravesite could be seen in all its strange and morbid glory. But as the years wore on, the mystery surrounding the incident took a turn for the bizarre. Fast forward to 1935. Nearly 40 years after the crash, ownership of Judge Proctor's property fell into the hands of Brawley Oates. Fully aware of what had taken place on the judge's former land, Oates's first order of business was to clean out the old well and use it as his primary water source. For about 10 years, everything seemed fine. But then, in 1945, at the age of 39, he began experiencing symptoms of arthritis, which quickly escalated into a particularly nasty case of the disease. He believed this to be a direct result of the discarded wreckage, which had contaminated the water. Though Oates lived in the house until his death in 1978, he never again used the well. That same year, he sealed it off with a concrete slab and placed an outbuilding atop it. To this day, the sealed-off well can still be seen on the property. An inscription on the top does, in fact, date back to 1945. But things get even stranger with this story. Remember the humble stone marker that was used to indicate the otherworldly pilot's final resting place? Well, sometime between 1897 and 1972, it disappeared. This was discovered by a team of scientists who paid Aurora a visit in 1972 to exhume the pilot's remains for study and research. No sooner had they arrived at the gates of Aurora Cemetery were they barred from entering by the Cemetery Association, because, according to them, exhumations, quote, can only be authorized by next of kin, unquote. In its place, a Texas state historical marker went up outside the cemetery a short time later, but any and all traces of the pilot's gravesite have since vanished. Even a makeshift marker, placed within the cemetery in 2010 and depicting a carved flying saucer on its face, was mysteriously removed two years later in 2012. If indeed what happened in Aurora was true, and given the fact that it took place so long ago, then why is there so much clandestine activity shrouding it from the public eye? The reigning theory as of now, at least by those of us who live beyond the town's limits, is that the entire charade was an elaborate hoax. 
In fact, one person, surprisingly an Aurora resident herself, came forward in 1980 to discuss the matter at length in an interview with Time magazine. The woman in question was 86-year-old Etta Pegas, and the tale she told was one of sensationalism gone too far. According to her, it had been Hayden, the self-same journalist who'd written the initial article in the Dallas Morning News, who'd fabricated the entire story. She claimed that he was well aware of Aurora's dire financial situation at the time. Following an outbreak of disease and the railroad completely overlooking the town, Hayden had concocted the story to draw attention to Aurora and its residents, perhaps in the hopes of reinvigorating it. She went on to state that Judge Proctor had never even operated a windmill on his property, a claim that was finally backed up on the April 12, 2020 edition of the Monster Talk podcast hosted by paranormal researcher Jerry Drake. Drake's analysis, upon visiting the Proctor and later Oates' estate, was that the well on site was clearly of modern construction, dating from sometime after the year 1940, and would therefore have no use for an old windmill. Whether real or hoax, the current residents of Aurora clearly display a great sense of humor, and perhaps a hint of pride, surrounding the incident that may or may not have taken place in their fair town 125 years ago. Aurora itself, namely its eponymous cemetery, has become something of a roadside oddity here in America, with many visitors passing through each year for a glimpse at the ground zero, where an otherworldly visitor violently touched down. As with Roswell, New Mexico, aliens can be found everywhere, in shop windows, as giant balloons at car dealerships, even as souvenirs in gas stations and restaurants. And even now, a century and a quarter later, the fervor shows no signs of either slowing or stopping. Such is the power of public perception and imagination. Real or not, we want to believe the impossible, the unusual. It seems to be within our very nature. Regardless which theory you support, it's clear that Aurora, Texas will enjoy its wildly fantastical reputation for years to come. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this tour of a truly extraordinary little town in Texas. Do you think the story is true or false? Give me a follow on Instagram and let me know in the comments of this latest post. It's at History Loves Company. That's History underscore Loves underscore Company. If you, like me, love history and wish to support continued content from this podcast, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. You can find three monthly support plans by visiting anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and clicking the support button. Listening and sharing help me in big ways too, so please do so on all podcast platforms. Join me again next week for another enthralling, and maybe even bizarre, episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time. Music